Swim check one, two. Bike check one, two. Run check one, two. I think we're ready. Let's try this. Welcome to the Try Beginner's Luck podcast, a podcast where we explore the sport of triathlon from a variety of perspectives to help beginner triathletes on their journey. I am your host, Nishanda Shines. Well, welcome back to another edition of Tribe Beginner's Luck. We're at the top of our season 2B and I'm really overwhelmed. Yes, that's the new word. I am so overwhelmed with joy that I get an opportunity to do this. It's not every day that you take a step out on the wild side and start something and stay committed to it throughout all of the challenges that life can throw you. And I think that's The beauty of who we are as triathletes is that it doesn't matter the obstacles we go through. We literally go through them and overcome them, which is what this season is about. Overcoming, yes, because you cannot be a triathlete without having to overcome some type of obstacles. So don't worry, we have amazing guests still to come, but on this day, we have a legend in his own right. Listen, you don't have to believe me. You can ask this man anything about triathlon and he will know it. He is like a walking, talking, living encyclopedia of all things triathlon. He got started back in the day where there weren't really road bikes. They just rode and they are hardcore. He did his first triathlon in 1985. Mm-hmm. Let's just put a pin there. We'll we'll bring that back up in a little bit. But currently he's had multiple careers, but most recently in his second round of or iteration of careers, he is the vice president of operations at with Kinetic Multisport. Yes. He is the man behind all of the registrations. He makes sure that Everything is in sync. He is the person probably telling Greg what to do. This gentleman is none other than Don White. Don, welcome to Trap Beginner's Luck. Well, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. It's my favorite podcast. <laughs> hey, it's a favorite podcast. Oh, that says a lot, right? Because, okay, real story, real facts. I used to think, Donna was scary. He wouldn't crack a smile. He was always serious. And I was always so scared. And I was like, oh my gosh, I just don't want to mess with him. And the fact that he loves the podcast, that means a lot to me because I really want this podcast to be something that can be relatable to everyone and not exclude any person. I want anyone who wants to enjoy or hear good stories that they'll be able to come here and find that story, whether they are a beginner or they are elite. Obviously our focus is beginners, but we all have a story to be told. And I would like to be able to explore those stories with my audience. And so Don, you are probably one of the first group of people to do triathlons. And I just want to get into your story about how, why, when, all that good stuff. So tell me, when did you know that triathlon was going to be a thing for you? Well, obviously a great question. So, yeah, like you said, I I wouldn't say I was a pioneer in the sport, but certainly 
you know, in the sophomore, junior years of triathlon collectively, because um, I know some of those guys that were in considered the first triathletes. Um, I'm actually really good friends with a few of those type people like Russ Jones, who won the first triathlon on Fiesta Island in 1974. Um, so, but anyhow, yeah, I, you know, I, I grew up playing sports, uh, little league. I did everything, baseball, football, basketball, uh, t-ball. And then, uh, then I found soccer uh, and I really like soccer because I could run. So I created this uh, energy about myself that I would just focus on soccer. So in middle school and high school, I played soccer. I still liked to run. And then later I, I, I was a runner as well, but I wasn't very good at running. So I know it's hard to believe, but I just liked running. I just wasn't that good at it. So anyhow, in high school, I ran track in the winter, in the spring, and I played soccer in the fall. Uh, I didn't have the greatest grades in high school. I was not as dedicated to my academics as I probably should have been. So I ended up going to Prince George's Community College for a few years, and uh, I played soccer uh, there at a very high level in junior college. Uh, matter of fact, in 1982, uh, we were uh, we finished third in the National Junior College Soccer Championships. And I, I was fortunate that in college, well, when I was in high school, I played soccer. It was in the fall, so I couldn't run cross country. I did run indoor track and outdoor track, mostly one mile, two mile-ish. And again, I was pretty slow, but I enjoyed the workouts. I enjoyed the atmosphere. And then when I got to college, they didn't have those same rules. So uh, I was recruited by the track coach to run in the community college. So I ran cross country and played soccer at the same time in the same season. They didn't have an indoor season, but then I ran outdoor track. And again, I wasn't that good, but it was fun. And we got to go on trips to different meets and things like that, which at the junior college level, it's hardly, you know, like not even as big as like high school meets that I had been to. Uh, so anyhow, uh, so I just thought that was kind of cool and I liked running. And then one interesting note though, is we did have a home soccer game in the fall of 1982 and we had a home cross country meet on the same day. So I actually got to participate in a five mile cross country race and a soccer game all in the same day. So <laughs> that was kind of fun. And that was one of the things that kind of started me on my adventure of finding unique things to do. And we can get into that a little bit later in some of the stuff I've done while doing triathlons. But so anyhow, fast forward 1985, I had kind of not really dropped out of junior college, but I just kind of realized that I wasn't getting anything out of that as well. I wasn't dedicated. And uh, I, I got a job at a liquor store just as a clerk, selling beer, liquor, whatever. So uh, it was an easy job. Uh, I wasn't a big drinker when I was young like that. I really didn't drink at all uh, until I was like 18 or 19 and mostly just a few beers here and then. And so anyhow, I would ride my bike. I had an old Fuji that I got when I was like in seventh grade and I would ride that back and forth to work because I didn't have a car. So I needed a new bike. So I went into a bike store in College Park and it's not even there anymore. It was off of, I uh, can't remember the name of that road. But anyhow, um, I went into a bike store to look for a new bike and I didn't have any money. And my brother loaned me 200 bucks to buy a bike. And it was a Panasonic bike. It had foam handlebar grips. It had Lazy Boy brakes and just regular clip pedals. And it was a 10 speed. 
So I bought the bike. Well, while I was in there, there was a poster on the wall. And the poster said, Bud Light Triathlon, Baltimore, June 30th. And this was like May, no, this was March of that year. So it said 1.5K swim. And I ran track, so I knew kilometers. So a lot of people don't. When you get into sport, you're like, wait a minute, what's kilometers? What's meters? So I ran track, so I had a good idea of that. So 1.5K swim. I know how to swim. I grew up swimming. Uh, I wasn't a competitive swimmer. I didn't take lessons, but I grew up with a swimming pool, so I knew how to swim. 40K bike. I knew how to bike. I had a bike. I was there buying a bike. That was fine. 10K run. I'd been a runner. Uh, so I was like, Hey, I could do that. Let me, uh, send away for the application to mail in to sign up with a check. So back then they didn't have the internet and there was no applications laying around. So you literally had to mail away to get an application to sign up, to send a check in and register. And there was no correspondence with the race. You sign up and then you show up. Um, so anyhow, that was in Baltimore. I was living outside of uh, Washington, D.C. In, in Prince George's County in Hyattsville area. And so I had known a little bit about triathlon just from watching the Ironman on TV. And I uh, read the Sports Illustrated article in 1979 uh, that uh, highlighted the Ironman in Hawaii. So I knew of triathlon. And so that's kind of what I wanted to do. Uh, at some point. And in 1979, while I was a junior in high school, I was 16 years old. And a buddy of mine's dad was a Korean war vet. Uh, he was a Marine in the in Korean war. And he's like, Hey, you running that Marine Corps marathon thing? And I said, I said, No. Um, why? And he said, Because you should, you're a runner. I was like, what it so anyhow, I researched it. And it was the Marine Corps marathon 1979, November 4th, 1979. Uh, same thing. I signed up and I was a 16 year old kid and I ran a four hours and 20 minute marathon. My dad dropped me off at the subway station because the red line had just been finished <laughs> a couple of years old on Rhode Island Avenue and uh, nowhere near like Chevrolet and College Park. Now it was like I had to go in close to the city to get on it. So anyhow, he dropped me off. I went into the city, ran the marathon. I, I had the money to buy the ticket to get home. And I, I rode the subway back home to metro and he picked me up and then so there my 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 running career was started as a young 16 year old and again it wasn't very fast four hours and 20 minutes but uh that kind of gave me the bug for multi-sports <laughs> yes it just wasn't that fast four hours and 20 minutes i mean well, I for a 16 year old i could have done like kichobi and done it in two hours but yes, you know whatever exactly. No, I love it. So you have a rich history in Washington, D.C., which is really good. But what I heard in your beginning is that you didn't really like school wasn't your focus. You ended up seeing that athletics was your way out. And so you zoned into that, which is fine. A lot of, you know, a lot of people do that. Like school isn't for everyone, although we know that it's definitely a necessity to get through preliminary grades. But when you get to the college level, you have other desires, other aspirations that you want to explore. And you may need to take like gap years and then come back to it. And right. that's OK. Right. So there's something out there for everyone. But the fact that at 16 years old, you did Marine Corps Marathon. Wow. And then fast forward a few years, you did your first mar triathlon, excuse me, in Baltimore. 
Wow. So the Baltimore Triathlon has been going on for a long time. Yeah, so time. This, this was part of the Bud Light Triathlon series okay. that was popular in the 80s and the 90s. And then I, I was actually doing some research a couple of days ago looking up because there's not a lot of information on those old races. And they actually moved that race after five years to Delaware, which was 45 minutes away. And I was long into the Navy. I joined the Navy in November of 85. And they actually moved it to Lums Pond, Delaware, which is so ironic because we, Kinetic Multisports, puts on the Lums Pond Triathlon every year. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. I was like, hey, I know Lums Pond. But back then, I didn't know what Lums Pond was. And it was in the Inner Harbor. The other cool thing about that race in 1985, Lynn Brooks, who was a famous race director and a previous professional triathlete in the early 80s, was the race director. And in 1985, there was over 2,000 people registered for that race, the Baltimore Bud Light Triathlon. And at the time, it was a world record for the most number of triathletes in a first ever triathlon, meaning that it was the first year they had that Baltimore Triathlon and they got 2,000 people. So I always thought that was kind of cool. And just to piggyback back to the uh, Marine Corps Marathon, it was the fourth Marine Corps Marathon in 1979. And... It was the day the hostages were taken hostage in Iran. So if you're older like me, people would remember that uh, there was a, an attack and the, the American embassy was invaded in Tehran and uh, hostages were taken hostage and held for, I didn't look it up, but it's three or 400 and something days. So every day on the news, they would say day two, day three of this hostage crisis. So that was day one, uh, November 4th, 1979. It was Marine Corps Marathon. So the Marines had a lot to do with you know, uh, protecting the world and stuff. So that, I just thought that was kind of interesting. So on that anniversary every year, I kind of always remember back. And I always said I wanted to go back. I did go back and do it several other times. I think I've done it six or seven times. And I used to try and go back every five years or every 10 years, just on the anniversary of the year I did it, not on the year of the anniversary. So uh, as I've gotten older, I, I don't run as much, but I did promise myself that I will go back on the 50th anniversary which is in 2029. So I'm trying to recruit some friends to go back and do a very comfortable walk jog uh, to honor my 50th uh, Marine Corps Marathon. So I have a few years <laughs> to get ready for that. But uh, I always loved that, you know, it's in the, near where I grew up and it was the people's race, you know, and it always has been always back to the beginning. So it, it's um, an amazing race. That was my first marathon. And uh, will I do it again? No, but I will come out and support you in 2029. Sure, sure. There you um, go. But no, I think th it was a good marathon. I just feel like when you live in Washington, D.C., you have luxury to do the course all the time. Sure, and so sure. I like to race destination wise. But no, I will definitely come and support you. But did you hear all those facts that Don was <laughs> dropping? He constantly <laughs> is dropping facts and knowledge. So listen, if you're into the historic history, don't worry, you will get that with Don. We're going to get good facts. We're going to get triathlon facts. We're going to get world facts. We're going to get it all. So in November of 1985, you signed up and enlisted in the Navy. I sure did. Yeah. So uh, growing up in Maryland, my dad was retired Navy. He was enlisted and became an officer. So I grew up and he retired when I was in kindergarten. So I didn't really live the Navy life um, as a young kid like my older siblings did. But uh, I was looking, you know, I was a little lost. I wasn't necessarily not the smartest guy, just educational wise. So I found my way in the Navy. I said, hey, I'll sign up, do a few years and then see what where life takes me. Well, fortunately for me, I was stationed in San Diego 
uh, for the first six years of my career in two different uh, tours. And I ended up re-enlisted and making a career out of it. Uh, and as a sidebar, I later went to night school and got my bachelor's degree in 2000. And in 2005, I got a master's degree in education. So I just had to get, uh, you know, some bearings and you know, I had a family to support and, you know, uh, so anyhow, I, I did realize later my potential educationally wise. But um, yeah, so the cool thing and which kind of fueled me for years was today when you think of a professional triathlete and you an American professional triathlete, you say, where do they live? I'm asking you, the host. Where do you think most professional triathletes live and train? I would probably say between two places. Colorado and Arizona. You got it. So Colorado, like Colorado, um, Boulder, and you know Colorado Springs and all those areas. That's now the mecca of American triathlon. So back in the 80s and the 90s, it was San Diego. So the big four, Mark Allen, Scott Tinley, Scott Molina, they all, and Dave Scott, they all lived and trained in San Diego. So you could be on a ride up and imagine you're in Rock Creek Park riding your bike and there goes Dave Scott. And you're like, whoa, that's Dave Scott. And then they would do swims in La Jolla Cove, or they would do the famous Tuesday night run up in North County. And if you were an emerging pro, you moved to San Diego to become a professional. Uh, I never had aspirations to be a professional, but I just thought it was cool. You can't go to Yankee Stadium and start hitting baseballs with Derek Jeter. You know, it just doesn't work that way. So being able to be in amongst of the professionals at the time was just kind of cool. And then over the years, it just kind of, you know, that went away. But San Diego was always a hotbed of triathletes. The weather's great. There's a lot of races. Um, you can race year round. So I just found that, hey, I'm not going to be that person that does two or three races a year. I want to do, you know, 10, 20, 30, you know, triathlons a year. And I've been lucky to do that. Another thing for me, anyhow, Having served in the military in the Navy for 25 years, I had what I call cyclical racing, meaning that when I got stationed on a ship or stationed with the Marine Corps because I was a hospital corpsman and a dental technician, my training went down a lot because I had an operational tempo that I had to deal with. So in a, in a way, that was actually a good thing because then when I got back on shore duty, I could ramp my triathlon training back up and so forth. So it kind of kept me from burning myself out over the years. Uh, but that was, you know, it was always fun to move to a new place too when you're in the military because then, you know, you have new places to run, new places to ride. You got to find new pools and new groups and new tri clubs and so forth like that. So I've been fortunate to have been stationed in San Diego, Hawaii, uh, Japan, Texas. Uh, South Carolina. So every time I move as a triathlete, that's always an exciting, you know, venture to go find new triathletes, go find new races, go find new training routes and so forth. Uh, so that's always been fun to help to keep me motivated over the years. Okay. I'm going to stop you right there. Cause if I let you keep going Don, I won't even have a show and that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. I hear you. I hear you. So, I'm ready. I want to talk about your first experience or your first couple of experiences, because sure. you did one in 1985, probably in the spring, and then you moved and started at the, you know, got enlisted right. to the Navy, and then you right. had some other ones. So what was it like doing your first triathlon? So I'll tell you this. And so I went by myself, 
And the thing with that race, I, I, I and it's funny because I tell, I tell beginners all the time, I'm like, you're only going to have your first race one time, you know? So, and that's why in my job, I try and make that experience for the beginners the best that it can be and try and curve all the obstacles that are out there for them. But so example, I drove to Baltimore. It was a double transition. So, and there's not a lot of those left nowadays. So what that meant was we swam up at uh, the, uh, Gunpowder Falls State Park up there. You got 2,000 people. So you got to get everybody there. You got to drop your bike off the day before. Then you ride, you get up there in the morning via buses, and then like a big marathon, but it was a triathlon. Then you ride your bike to the Inner Harbor, second transition Inner Harbor, and then we ran around Fort McHenry and then finished in the Inner Harbor. But here's a couple things that I remember. When I showed up in the morning at the Inner Harbor to pick up the bus, I was sitting on a curb. I was a 21-year-old kid just sitting there by myself at this triathlon, never did a triathlon before. And somebody pulled up in their car and they said, hey, are you going to the start? And I was like, yeah, I'm waiting for the buses. They're like, hey, we're heading up in our car. Do you want to ride? And I was like, I would love a ride at Total Strangers. In 1985. So to me, right away, I was like, hey, is this trial? Because I've been to a lot of 10Ks, a lot of half marathons, a lot of marathons up at, to that point. And, you know, it, I just never had that feeling in a running race. So in, I was like, hey, this triathlon thing is pretty cool. They were really nice, you know. So I wasn't worried that I wouldn't finish, but I didn't have a wetsuit. Like nobody had wetsuits back then. And so I didn't have wetsuits. So I was worried a little bit about the swim. I practiced, but not too much in open water. There's really nowhere around Hyattsville to swim in open water. Um, at least back then, it wasn't safe anywhere. So, but anyhow, just the whole feeling, the vibe, you know, the sense of accomplishment. I still have pictures. Back then, the photographers would take your picture and then they would mail them to you in these little teeny little proofs. And I still have all those proofs that I got from that race. And I never did buy those pictures. Uh, but I still have the proofs and I have a couple pictures that somebody had taken of me um, with my tri shorts on. I had tri shorts. I didn't have a tri top. I had a running singlet and that was it. And I had a helmet. I had to buy a helmet to do the race because you had to have a helmet. Nobody rode with helmets back then, not even pro cyclists. So just the atmosphere of the friendliness. I still remember to this day them pulling up saying, hey, you want to ride? I was like, yeah, I'd love a ride. Thank you. So that kind of atmosphere, I think, uh, especially for being my first race, I was like, hey, that's kind of cool. I love it. So that is something that every, okay, I'll say about 98.96% of our guests have said is that the atmosphere for triathlons is like none other in terms of the community and the friendliness. And this just further explains that this was the vibe back in the 80s, you know, friendliness. And I think, I wonder, do you think it's because of, the known struggle that we go through as triathletes that, Hey, we're going to, we, we already know what we're up against. So the least we can do is just be nice and friendly. Do you think that is something that has to play with the, the, the uh, familial vibes that we get as a community, because there really is something special about the triathlon community. Yeah, I, I certainly think so. I look to some of these mud runs and these Spartan challenge kind of things where, you know, you have the one percenters that are racing to win this thing, but 99% of the people are there to have fun and they help each other up the walls. I've personally never done one. I could never do that. But how they help each other up the walls and things. So I think back to triathlon in the early days, it's kind of like that. Hey, this is a challenge. It's a new frontier. We need to help each other out. 
there were some really good athletes back in those days. You know, like I think the majority of people were much faster back then only because the ones who chose to do triathlons were super focused, hyper focused on their training. So they were uh, the the mid median level of participation and quality of athlete was much higher uh, as it is now, which is great because if the sport would have never lasted, if it stayed like that. And a lot of those people aren't racing today. I have, uh, that's another one of my sidebars, but I, I have probably 80% of all the printed results of every race I've ever done on, on, in a uh, binders behind me. And so I can pull out results from 1985 Baltimore Bud Light race and look people up. And I have looked people up as I've met people over the years. They're like, hey, yeah, I did that race in Baltimore. And I'd look their name up like, they sure did. There they are. So, um, so anyhow, <laughs> It's just kind of fun to look back at, you know, we don't, we didn't have athletes back then where you could like, you know, Google sports people and say, hey, what races did they do? So you had to pull out the paper. But anyhow, yeah, I think it was like a challenge. People are like, hey, we're in this together. Let's, you know, have fun and enjoy the experience. Kind of like where we're at today. I think the resurgence of triathlon is getting more entry level people into it that not everybody wants to go to Kona. Not everybody needs to do Ironman. People just want to have fun you know, whether it's a color run or whatever, uh, I look for those people that are joining the triathlon. Are we going to make them lifelong triathletes? Who knows? But it would be great to have people that could do two or three triathlons every year for the rest of their life. The, uh, vice the one and done. Those kind of people, they're, you know, they're out there. But I, my job at Kinetic is to try and convert those one and doneers. Say, hey, come back, give us another try, you know. Uh, you know, much like your, your protege there that did kinetic and then came and raced uh at at the giant acorn back in september that kind of thing hey you know don't just do one come back train do another one and then you'll enjoy the experience even that much more well you're talking about miss kayla i don't know if she's my protege but i can <laughs> see her talent and i just want to make sure as a youth you know she gets what she needs because i know coming from Washington, D.C., the limited resources that are available. And I feel like it's my duty to ensure that if I see any young athlete, regardless of who they might be, and I can see that they need help, sure. it's I feel like it's my duty to help someone else because people helped me. Sure. And so I think that's a part of, again, that spirit of community and making sure that you know, the youth have what they need because they're, they're the future. They're they the ones who are going to keep this sport going. And if we don't pour into them now, you know, we won't see the fruit of it later and we want to see this sport grow. And so I'm all about making sure I can pull up someone from the, you know, the youth and make sure that they have what they need, if they need, um, whatever it is. Sure. But Don, you, you really didn't tell us about your experience. You talked around it. So I'm thinking that Baltimore wasn't a really, it wasn't a memorable experience in terms of your first one, which is fine because now we all don't always have good first opportunities. Right. I mean, it wasn't a bad experience. It was just kind of like, here it is. And I Man. did it. But then I was like, you know, I joined the Navy. So my life changed and it was almost probably more than a year before my next one, only because of my, you know, training and so forth. And uh, what was cool was once I got into it after that, it, in San Diego back in the 80s and 90s, each base around the area, they would have their own triathlon. Oh. So it's like having local, you know, kind of like today where you would go to a triathlon where it's like 100 people and you would call it like a local triathlon. So the bases would have races uh, 
every couple of months around the San Diego area and you would get like 100 or 200 people and they were all 90% of military people. So you kind of got to meet your peers in the triathlon and the military and we kind of got to know each other. And so those experiences came from that, you know, it was mostly building relationships with people. My good friend, Doug Morocco, who uh, I met in May of 1989 at the sub-base triathlon. It was, uh, as I spoke earlier, they, the bases would have these races. Well, every year they pick one race to be the championship of the, of the area. So it was called the Southern Pacific Sports Conference, Military Southern Pacific Sports Conference Triathlon Championships. And so if you were a who's who in the military triathlon, you would go to that race every year. So in 1989, it was at the sub base and that's where I was stationed. And my wife, Suzanne, she worked as a lifeguard at the sub base there. And so um, I ended up finishing fourth overall. And that was probably one of my breakthrough races uh, uh, as becoming more of a, I wouldn't say elite, but a more competitive age grouper. But my good friend, Doug Morocco was, second i think in that race and that's the day we met and we're still best friends to this day so you know you talk about building relationships and that's you know one and we'll get to another very important one later but (laughs) relationship that is uh that was brought to me via triathlon wow so that was your breakthrough and then i think i saw somewhere in in 1990, you became, you placed first overall. Yes, that was my first overall win. At that same base, different race, but at the sub-base triathlon, it was a reverse triathlon. And it was kind of a short one. It was like two and a half mile run, six mile bike, and then a 75 yard swim at the end. And I was the first overall finisher. Wow. And that then the first one. And then you got another first overall when you did the, what is it called? Super Frog Half Super Frog, yeah. So there was a guy, Amoki Martin, he was a Navy SEAL in Vietnam, and he was a triathlete. And he uh, he decided that the early days of Ironman, starting in 1978 in Hawaii, he wanted to prepare military guys to and ladies eventually, but originally the men, to prepare for the Hawaii Ironman, he created what was called the Super Frog Triathlon in San Diego, held at the Coronado base where the Navy SEALs trained. And uh, Moki was hit by a car on his bicycle training for triathlons and became a paraplegic. And he's still alive today. And he created that race and he was a race director for, oh, probably 25 or so years. And then later, the Ironman, Ironman, Hawaii or Ironman Corporation um, actually purchased the race from the Navy and it was a fundraiser for Navy SEALs uh, families that uh, uh, fallen warriors children scholarships and stuff so anyhow Ironman purchased the race and made it a mainstream race in uh, part of the 70.3 series and then uh, four or five years ago three or four years ago they ended up canceling. They no longer have it. So I had the privilege back in the early days. That was my first half Ironman in 1987. And I would do that every year. It was always held in September, the middle of September. And the idea was that it was uh, six weeks or so before the Ironman in Hawaii. So if you were going to Hawaii as a military or even a civilian, they would let civilians do the race. Um, you would come to San Diego and do the Super Frog. And what was cool about that race, well, not really cool, but it was flat, but so it was always run on the sand 
which mimics what the Navy SEALs have to train on. So, and then the swim is a two loop swim with the high surf in San Diego on the north, on the uh, shore there by Coronado and or uh, North Island. And then the bike was on the base or out on the highway, um, the Imperial Highway, or they, I forgot what they call it, that goes down to San Diego, or excuse me, Imperial Beach. So anyhow, it was always a difficult race. So I did it every year. And I think my first year I was eighth overall. And then one year, the next year I was sixth. And then I was fifth. And then I was fourth. And then I I was second. And then I got transferred. <laughs> so so it was like I, it's time for him to go. I, exactly. So I was transferred to Hawaii. So three years later, I came back in 1995 and I won the race overall. So wow. uh, that's one of my biggest accomplishments. And I had to overcome a lot that day. It's always usually very hot and I'm not a great swimmer. So I think I came out of the water. I was nine minutes down and I barreled through the bike and had a really good run and uh, was fortunate enough to, to win that race. Um, so that's probably my marquee race. And the fact that Ironman took it over later and that Lance Armstrong won it in 19 or 2005, uh, it was kind of always fun to joke about that, that him and I won the same race. <laughs> See, tidbits in history for days. This is good trivia stuff. I think <laughs> I'm going to come talk to you and we're going to do like a a try trivia night and oh, sure. just get some good stuff going. Sure, there's not enough time in the day. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, um, I want to pull out from this particular section is you said that you weren't a great swimmer, but you came through, through the bike and you finished it with the run. And recently watching some of, um, which I'm so grateful for PTO and them putting some races on TV because you're able mm -hmm. to see how, yeah. um, athletes who aren't the best of swimmers are gunning it down on the bike and really making a win for it on the run. And usually they say on the bike is where you win or lose the race. Right. Yeah, that's right. But with these pros of today, if you think that you have a so-so run, you better put it all on the floor uh, for your bike so that you can save up for the run because there's some runners who are just super fast mm -hmm. and they're able to come up. So for those of you who are listening, who don't know how to swim or who are not good at swimming, it's okay. That's why you have three disciplines all wrapped into one sport so that you can master one of them and come out ahead. Like for me, I'm a swimmer all day long. Mm -hmm. So I know at any given point in a race, the bike and the run, it's going to be what it's going to be. But the swim is usually where I have, that's my yeah. fun part of the day. Sure. And now the bike yeah. is becoming a better sport. Now that I was like, okay, I'm the swim I can do all day long. Let me transition and focus my energy on getting better at the biking, because that's also been a challenge area for me. So I just say, listen, pick your focus each year. If the first year is going to be swimming, let it be swimming. If two years from now you want to focus on biking, Focus on biking, getting right. your cadence up, working on your power and making sure your watts go out. And then you can kind of come back and focus on the running because with running, you can run, walk. But if you want to be competitive, right. you know, you need to be good in all of the areas. However, it's OK if you can't swim. And I just want to put that out there because a lot of people like, well, I can't swim. It's OK. And you, can, you know what I like to tell go people? Go ahead. It's like I... Like I said, I wasn't, I knew how to swim, but I wasn't a great swimmer. When I was stationed in Hawaii, I joined the University of Hawaii Rainbow Masters group. And that was the first time I ever joined the Masters. I didn't even know what it meant. And uh, I learned how to swim much more efficiently and understood that just going out and swimming a half mile here or a mile there, it doesn't cut it. You, you need to have structure and you need to have workouts. 
So even if you don't want to live a life of a master swimmer, you, you learn the structure, you know, and, and then later, as I transferred, I couldn't always get into a master's group. But uh, just before I retired, I was stationed in South Carolina and I found a local master's swim group, which was made up of 95% master swimmers and 5% of triathletes. And the coach was a Hall of Fame swimming coach, um, Dick Fetters, who coached at Michigan State and at uh, Catholic High School in Notre Dame. is a swimming Hall of Fame coach. He's passed away a number of years ago. But he was at 90 in his 90s on the pool deck and a seven lane, 25 yard pool with about 50 people in the pool. And he knew what every person was doing in every lane and every lap. And he would teach. He taught me how to swim at the age of 45 years old. So I always like to tell beginners, I was like, you never know when that light bulb's going to click on and you, you kind of pick things up because if you don't learn how to swim as a competitive swimmer, as a young person, it's it's a lot harder as you get older, but it's not impossible, you know, and, and you can always improve in your swim and your cadence and your endurance. And that's what I find exciting about triathlon. Like you said, now I'm learning to bike much faster. I can do this. And same thing with the run. You know, it's a lot of people. Oh, I don't know how to run. I wasn't a runner. It just takes time and effort and coaching, you know, and that's the beauty nowadays is. There are coaches for everybody, you know, the coaches for professionals, coaches for beginners, coaches for people that want to do Ironman, coaches for people that don't have a lot of money and can't afford coaches. There's a little bit of everything out there. And with the proper guidance, you can enjoy the sport a lot more. You, you can see people that get frustrated that might have a terrible swim or worried about finishing the swim. But the fact that they're out there doing it and know, you know, I, I remind them that, hey, you can get better and this can become easier and you will have a lot more fun. Just stick with it. Don't give up because you're not that good at one of the three events. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to transition us to talking a little bit. There's something important in the middle, and then we're going to talk into the operations because I think it's sure. important for us to talk to beginners about the operations yeah. of the business. I think it was in 1986, you met a person because they were racing, but you didn't race. Can you talk a little bit about how, uh, what happened in 1986? Sure. Um, this is, a, this is a lifelong story, but I enjoy telling it. I don't tell it that much, but, uh, so in 1986, a buddy of mine, I, I hadn't seen him in a while and he was driving down the street in San Diego and I was driving down the street on the other, going the other direction. And we saw each other and we had gone to boot camp together and hadn't seen each other in a year or so. And we pulled over, started talking. He's like, hey, you want to go to Mexico and go have a few beers, maybe have spend the weekend or whatever? This We were in San Diego. I was like, sure, let's go. So we went to Tijuana, had a couple of beers, and we're like, hey, let's go to Rosarito. It's about 40 miles south of Tijuana. So we drove to Rosarito, had a couple of beers, and we're like, hey, let's go to Ensenada. So we drove another hour south to Ensenada, and we pull up to this bar, and it was called Who Sounds Cantina? And we go into the bar. It's a very little, you know, little hole in the wall bar on off street in, 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 in Mexico there in Ensenada. And so we're sitting around having a couple beers and this girl turns around and takes her beer bottle and slams it on my friend's beer bottle. That was a thing back in the day. And then like your beer would like spill out and you try and drink it and stuff. So it turns out this girl was with four of her girlfriends and they were all down there doing the Baja triathlon in Ensenada. It was, supposed to be a 200 yard swim and the water was about three feet deep 
And then it was supposed to be like a 10 mile bike and then like a two mile run. And the story I got was they walked the entire swim all together, all five of them. They all were college students from Long Beach State. One girl's mother had a Cadillac. It was like from the 70s. So if you don't remember those cars, the trunk of the car, it fit three bikes in the trunk. And then they had a bike rack for the other two bikes on the back of their car. So they walked the, they walked the swim. Then they did the bike, but there was no one at the turnaround. So they kept biking and they ended up biking like almost 20 miles, which they weren't prepared for. So then when they got back, they had to finish the run. So they all walked the run together, the five of them. And I'm pretty sure I have the results from that race somewhere. I was not racing. I didn't know that. I was like a triathlon. Hey, I do triathlons. I, I would have loved to have done that triathlon. And so one of the people in that group was my wife, Suzanne. So we met that night in a bar in Mexico after she had did a triathlon and I didn't do any triathlon. And here we are 30, we got married a year later in December. That was October 17th, 1986. We got married December 19th, 1987. So almost a year later we were married and here we are celebrating in a couple months our 35th wedding anniversary and she has still not done uh triathlon number two <laughs> so but we need to get suzanne hey do. suzanne out here we to do, do triathlon number two well i had her getting ready to do a super sprint down here in in raleigh in the durham area a couple of years ago and then covid hit and mm. so she, cause I wanted to write an article and send it to triathlete magazine and see what the record for the distance, the time between your first triathlon and your second triathlon. And I thought that would have been pretty cool. Well, so now it'll be even longer. It'll yeah, be even longer exactly, now. So. Exactly. So, yeah. So I always say one of the best triathlons I ever didn't do was the Baja triathlon in 1986 in Ensenada, Mexico, which we still have the t-shirt. I took her finisher certificate and I framed it. And I have it hanging around somewhere, but I still have that as well. <laughs> so listen, for those of you who are single and ready to mingle, come to try. Try is where you, you all you just got to do is be around. It That's is, it one is just thing happen. that hasn't changed from the 80s to the 90s to the 2020s is there's plenty of singles. Both, both sexes. So, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Love it. Okay. So now the business of triathlon, you are the operations guy. What is one thing you would tell a beginner to do when racing or registering? Most of them already do it, but there's enough that don't. So we, our team takes a lot of time in preparing the website, uh, we have one of the better websites we feel of any triathlon company in the world. Um, and we spend a lot of time putting information on that website, updating information, trying to keep people informed. So the first key is to read the website, read the course maps, read the athlete guide. We have a 15 to 20 page athlete guide for every race weekend. Um, and we update it usually the week of the race. So the information is as pertinent as can be. Most of the time, 95% of that information in the athlete guide is the same from year to year. So if you say, hey, it's, you know, from last year, it doesn't matter. Really, the only thing that changes is the date of the race and the date of packet pickup, which is the same, the Friday, the Saturday, or the Saturday night, the Sunday. So basically, my biggest advice is read the athlete guide, read the website literally 99% of the 99.9% .9 of the information can be found in those two documents alone. 
Um, you can imagine the emails that I get, which I don't mind answering. It's just, it, it gets uh, frustrating. Sometimes I have to keep myself in check when I get emails for information that's clearly on the website and easily accessible. I've spent many years developing an FAQ page on the back of our website that is chock full of every nugget of information that you would need, not only for our race, but for any kind of trial fund. And most of the time, people just don't take the time to search out the FAQ, whether it's water temperature history, USA Triathlon rules, beginner information, uh, pages of pages of coaches who have written us documents and point papers on beginning triathlete transitions, what kind of bike, how to swim. All that information can be found on our FAQ page. So that's my biggest thing. Read, 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 read. And you can always uh, email me. I don't mind. I, I love interacting with the triathletes. So about this reading thing, I was at a race this weekend and I noticed that even during the race, athletes don't take the time to be present and to read. And as an announcer, it's our job to make sure people are going the right way and not coming across timing chips or timing mats that will mess up their splits and they don't get it. I mean, in this sign, it's interesting because afterwards, after the race was over, I took some time off, you know, took some debrief time, but then I went on a run myself and I said, let me run the route to see what the sign says because so many people were wanting to come a certain way versus another. The signs that are out there from an operational standpoint, you put them there so that people can know where to go and to keep them directionally in check and people still don't read. What do you do in situations where someone has gotten lost on the race course and then they're mad, but they're mad at you even though it's their fault because they didn't know the route or if they've now run extra time because they messed up on the run route because they didn't follow the clearly marked signs. What do you do to tell someone to stay present when racing? Yeah, I mean, a great question. I know exactly what you're talking about. And we actually had one other person back in September at that race uh, on the run course past the turn to go down to the campground and came back to the run start by the uh, by the park ranger's office. So the one you're talking about is by the finish line. And yes, I had a lot to do with those signs. And I increased, I doubled the size of all the signs when I was hired uh, to make them even bigger to see. Uh, that's always a tricky point. You're right, people are in the moment. But if you know you have two laps to do, no race is going to, unless you're in the Olympics, and they don't even run past the finish line. They run through the transitionary if you watch on TV. But uh, no race is going to have you run through the finish line to start a second lap. Just that alone will tell you, hey, if I'm in the finish line, shoot, I'm in the wrong place if I have another lap to go. And that big sign says, second lap, straight, finish, second lap, turn right into the finish line. So, yeah, it's frustrating. I talk athletes down off a ledge every weekend. We had a gentleman at a race at Lums Pond. It's a sprint triathlon, a 10-mile bike. It takes two miles to get from the transition area outside of the park, much like Lake Anna. Uh, that's a long park road as well. Uh, but the course was literally six miles outside the park, looping around the park. And the gentleman went straight past the sign that said, turn right. You're doing one lap. Do your lap, come back in. But he went right past it. He tried to blame it on the volunteers. And, you know, I try and remind beginners, I remain experienced athletes as well. 
there's a hierarchy in triathlon. The signs on the road, we use yellow duct tape now because it's more environmentally friendly. We're not painting the roads with chalk paint and stuff like that. The signs on the road are number one. The signs that are coroplasts that are put into the side of the road are number two. Number one, I'll backtrack. Number one is you know in the course. Number two is the duct tape. Number three are the signs. The, the, the volunteers in the yellow t-shirts at Kinetic Events are not there to tell you where to go. They're there to protect your life and keep you safe. The police officers are in no way ever going to tell you which way to go. I don't care what you do. They are not, that's not what they're there for. Their focus is to control the traffic and the cars so no one gets hurt. Uh, luckily, we rarely have anyone get hurt. It does happen sometimes, but usually, like you mentioned, people are not present in the moment and understanding. If if athletes would drive the course like we recommend, and a lot of courses are multi-loop, so it's not like you're driving an entire course. You're just driving the parts, looking at the signs. The signs are usually up on Thursday afternoons uh, to look at the signs and look at the tricky points and understand because you're right. When you get in a race and I've done hundreds of races, I know I've done really good ones and I've done ones that weren't marked well. And yes, I've gone off course. I've gone off course on the swim. I've gone on course on the bike and I've gone off course on the run. And I know not 90% of the time it's my fault. Um, so anyhow, and I know it's frustrating. And like you said, it is hard time to explain to someone, Hey, you didn't do the whole course. Uh, if you go off course and you know it, then you can go back onto the course at the point you left the course and finish your route and you'd be fine. If you cut the course short, then you'll have to be disqualified. In our races, we don't pull your chip. We let you continue in the race and you still get your splits, which is nice because even if you don't become an official finisher, you'll still get your splits. A lot of races won't do that. They'll pull your chip and you're done. That's it. There's no more race for you. So it is frustrating, and you can see I'm very passionate about the sport, and it just drives me insane when people go off course. One time at Patriots, a few year, number of years ago when I first got hired, if you've ever done Patriots on the bike course, everyone, sprint, Olympic half, it doesn't matter, you turn right into the park on a little pavement, it's almost like a bike path, and Greg Hawkins paid to pave that road back when he first started putting on triathlons out of his own pocket to make a road there for the safety of the athletes. And we used to spray chalk that turn. And there were two volunteers at the turn. This was like 10 years ago. The guy barreled past the volunteers and came all the way back around to the bike out section of, of Jamestown Beach Park. He complained after the race that he missed the turn. So I rode out there on my mountain bike and took pictures. And I'm going to ask you, how many spray chalk arrows do you think there were leading up to that turn into the gate? You're not going to believe it. I'm glad what? you're sitting down. 14. Oh, wow. 14. Because back then it wasn't like peeling duct tape off of a roll. It's literally a can of chalk. And we would chop, chop. And the guy got crazy. And I talked to the volunteer. I said, hey, did the guy go by you? He goes, yeah, we were waving our flags. And because they're teenagers, you know, 14, 16-year-old high school kids, they were we're like, this guy blew right by us. We didn't know what to do. And I was like, it's not your fault. All you do here is to help people make this turn. And so anyhow, stuff when it's extremely obvious, sometimes, like you said, people are not present in the moment and they miss those turns. They do. And, you know, in, in other instances, I'm there usually at finish lines if I'm not in the transition area talking and, you know, cheering on the athletes. But 
We had even volunteers on at signs and people just were not listening. So Don, you gave some really sound advice. There's a hierarchy in um, the signage. Know your route, drive the route. That is a good one because when you drive the route, you get a sense of where there might be potholes, where they have already identified places where you need to mark. And you can get a sense of, okay, where there might be inclines, where there might be a steep hill, a sharp turn. Like you just get a feel for it. Then look at the tape. And then the volunteers are not your guides. Volunteers are just that. They are volunteers to help you, keep you safe, and as well as the police officers. So definitely be mindful of that. Part of okay. the, uh, let me add real quick. So in an instance, like the gentleman that missed that turnout in Delaware, a lot of our races will have a sprint triathlon and an Olympic triathlon going on at the same time. So in that case, the sprint triathlon was one loop and the Olympic triathlon was three loops. And you have a volunteer looking at a person on a bike going 25 miles an hour. They don't know what race you're in. So, and they don't know to tell you to turn in and someone else to go straight. So usually they get caught in the moment where they're just flagging people in one direction. So people have to understand that it's not just their show. It's there's other races going on. So they have to be a parent that they need to know where they need to go. Is that, you know what I mean? That makes sense. Absolutely. It totally makes sense to me. But also think about the safety of other athletes. If you want other athletes to be safety, think about your safety, think about their safety. And so I think that reciprocal behavior is something that we need to be cognizant of when we're racing, even though we want to get that PR, we want to, you know, hammer down. Safety is always first. Safety first, then get your PR. Yeah. All right. We're coming close on time. Sure. What else would you want beginners to know about operations from a triathlon perspective, from a race perspective? Yeah, we, you know, we put a lot of effort into what we do from, from the start to the finish, from when you first check in. I, I think it's important that the visual of like packet pickup looks the same at every race. People know to check in at the front, you get your t-shirt, your cap, your famous kinetic race socks, you get your timing chip, you can purchase merchandise or just ask questions, look at the course maps again. I like to tell people, once you get to the race site, I always have the maps posted there so you can orient yourself to actually being, because I've been to races where I've looked at the maps over and over and over, but if I've never been there. I don't know what direction is what. And even with like our transition areas, we have tents that say bike in, bike out, swim in, run out. So even if you get flustered in the in the transition area, just look up and read the sign. Okay, that's the way I need to go. Uh, but just to be able to walk the site, you know, we put up signs. We have a nice finish line. We have a nice transition area. We always have plenty of porta potties. You know, a lot of the things kinetic racers uh, become used to, um, the beginners might not understand that there's a lot of work that goes into having the Gatorade, having the ice. You know, we we had a kind of a chilly day um, in September and we had over 4000 pounds of ice uh, and, you know, hundreds of gallons of, of bottled water for the aid stations and the athletes and so forth. So they're just appreciate their journey and understand that it takes a lot to put on a triathlon. And our goal is to have fun, safe races. Uh, our focus is 95 percent on beginners and the middle to the back of the Packers and the rest to the elites. Um, because we know that those numbers far outweigh the, the elites. We, 
we're proud that we can say we have races for elites and we have places for everyone else as well. I love it. And also, I want to just say from from what you just said, the focusing on beginners and people like me, the back of the Packers, the people who like to party, um, you do have a race, a, a gamut of people. I got an opportunity to do age group nationals today and the amount of people that I saw at age group nationals who race with kinetic was astonishing. And I was just like, wow. And there are people who are constantly improving their time. Like one person I can name in particular is Michelle Christie. I like to call her the queen of kinetic. And you see their times from year after year, just constantly improving. So that's not saying they're trying to be stagnant. And what I love about the triathlete is that okay, we get one goal and then it's like, okay, we're shooting for another goal. And it might be this time working on my transition time or working on this because every second matters and every second counts. So with that said, Don, I think we're ready for some rapid fire. What you think? All right, I'm ready. All right, but I want to brag on you just a little bit because you've done some pretty cool stuff. And I think people need to understand like, you come here with knowledge and history, but you're a pretty dope athlete in itself. You are a multi-year USA triathlon All-American. Um, but funny enough, you think that you've spent many more years as a middle of the Packer, which is hilarious. That's for sure. <laughs> multi-year US Navy All-Navy team member, member of the first All-Navy team 1997 team champions, and multi-year U.S. Navy Hawaii Ironman team captain. You participated in the granddaddy of all the Ironman events all in the same year. And I may get this wrong, but I'm <laughs> going to do it, get my best shot at it. Ahu Perimeter Relay Run, Waikiki Rough Water Swim, Honolulu Marathon, and the Hawaii Ironman all in one year. What? Yes. <laughs> that goes to show you, and he's a six-time Ironman championship Kona finisher. This gentleman lives and breathes triathlon. So listen, ladies and gentlemen, if you ever want to know some history, if Don doesn't know, I'm not sure who knows, but we're grateful to have you on Child Beginner's Luck. So let's get right into some rapid fire. You understand what rapid fire is? I do. I've seen every episode many twice. Okay. Because I don't want you (laughs) giving me five sentences when I just- No, no, quick. All right. Yes. Favorite distance? Sprint. Favorite discipline? Bike. What's your go-to workout? A Either a bike run or a swim run. Okay. When you don't feel motivated, how do you push to get it done? I look at my wall. Oh, okay. what barriers have you had to overcome to get into this sport well one big one that I don't talk a lot about when in 1972 when I was uh, nine years old I was riding my my Schwinn varsity no not even varsity Schwinn whatever you would call them back in the day banana seat bike home from school I was hit by a pickup truck and broke my right leg and it took uh, almost a year to recovery and doctor says doctors say that I might not walk normal again. And so the great Navy doctors at Bethesda Naval Hospital patched me back up and I was back back together. So that was a big, you know, and I still think about that a lot over the years. And uh, just having a career in the military, a family man, 
raising children and still keeping that triathlon and not letting anything get into my way. Uh, I just keep overcoming and overcoming and I don't want to stop. I love it. Well, with that, just one more question we have to ask every guest. Do you pee on the bike or get off and take a proper pee break? Both. <laughs> so when I race Hawaii competitively, I taught myself how to do it. And okay. you always got to have a, a bottle of water with you to, to rinse off. But definitely. Now, I, I've had, with keeping it short, I have had issues like in Hawaii one year. I can't remember what year. I, I couldn't. And I had to get off the bike. And I had overhydrated. So I probably got off like six times to pee on the Queen K. So that's overdoing it. So, <laughs> and that that's is. back when there was only about four, 1,200 to 1,500 people racing. So when you're on the side of the road, people will see you. So <laughs> but now I don't, I, I, I would hold it. I mean, that's the luxury of men being able to get on the side of the road yes, and just yes. it, bam, I, handle I, business. I, I appreciate my ability to do that and understand the difficulties of the opposite sex for sure. Uh, this has been so great and so lovely. And I love, you know, again, this season is about a season of overcoming and you've overcome in many ways from being hit by a car to being told that you wasn't going to be able to walk again, only to be an outstanding runner to having to drop out of uh, 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 junior college only to come back in your adult life, probably after your children to get your bachelor's and then get your master's. And that's what it's all about. We as triathletes, we're not immune to overcoming, but we have to overcome to endure so that we can try. And I thank you for listening to this episode. Hey, if you enjoy what we're doing here at Try Beginner's Luck, like, share, leave us comments to help us out. All right. Remember, whenever you try Beginner's Luck, you always win. I'm Mashonda Shines and I'm out. Peace. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. We need your help so we can continue to try at TBL. So for more information on where you can find and subscribe to this podcast, visit www.trybeginnersluck.com. And don't forget, whenever you try beginner's luck, you always win.